1: Hi, folks, Matt here, and this week, bringing you something different. The Atlantic has a brand new show, and today you'll hear the first episode. It's called Crazy Genius, and it's hosted by The Atlantic staff writer Derek Thompson. Over eight episodes, Derek will talk to a host of fascinating leaders in different fields, all to answer eight bold questions about how technology is changing the world. I'll be back next week with my esteemed co-host for a rollicking Radio Atlantic conversation. For now... Enjoy Crazy Genius, and if you like it, make sure to subscribe. Where does the story of Facebook start? A lot of people might say 2012, the month it became a public corporation. Others might say 2004, the year Mark Zuckerberg launched the first version of his site at Harvard. But I want to start the story a little farther back.
2: There is a really critical moment in the 1830s.
1: This is Tim Wu.
2: I'm a professor at uh, Columbia University and author of The Attention Merchants.
1: The story he told me starts in 1833, New York City, with an ambitious young publisher named Benjamin Day.
2: He wanted to start a newspaper, so he founded a paper called The New York Sun.
1: Newspapers in the 1830s were an elite product. At the time, that meant they sold for all of six cents. But this guy, Benjamin Day, said no, I'll sell the sun for a lot less than
2: that. He priced it at a penny, which was like a quarter is today, or maybe a dollar.
1: That price meant he was selling at a loss. But Benjamin Day had an idea for how to make up that revenue. Advertising. Lots and lots of advertising.
2: He was the first to conceptualize of his audience as a product. He was like, I can resell them to other people as opposed to selling to them.
1: There is such sneaky genius here. For centuries, businesses mostly sold things they made. Day sold other people's attention. And The Sun quickly became one of the biggest newspapers in the world. But every invention has a little Frankenstein in it. Because in order to keep those readers reading, Day started publishing new kinds of stories. Like grisly descriptions of murder scenes and dead bodies.
2: I mean, they were really interesting. uh, The first... uh Today's first issue, the headline is uh, a tragic suicide. So, I mean, that immediately draws you in. So he had interesting stories. Right. It's amazing stories.
1: that even in the 1830s, you had uh, 21st century cliches of if it bleeds, it leads, and <laughs> cherchez la femme. These ideas have been with us for 180 years.
2: Our brains have been with us for even longer.
1: Suicide reports were just the beginning. The Sun published an Edgar Allan Poe story as a news report. They ran a 17,000-word feature claiming astronomers with telescopes discovered mythical creatures having orgies on the moon.
2: Um, man bats, is what he called them. <laughs> they had powerful sexual impulses. Uh, they were also kind of unicorn-like creatures wandering around. I should add, this was uh, never retracted. Published as news, never retracted. Oh, my God. And a sensation.
1: Sensational stories got readers. Readers got advertisers And advertisers got profits. Fake news came out of the business model. Facebook isn't a publisher, but it's in the same business. And it's got a lot of the same problems with fake news that The Sun did. Its business is maximizing attention. The audience is the product.
2: It's an astonishingly influential business model. And the moment the sun uh, started to make money. It was a little, to me, like the Wright brothers' airplane taking off, hmm. in the sense the world was never going to be quite the same again.
1: I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. Eight weeks, eight questions about how technology is changing the world, and eight answers. Today's question is... Can Facebook fix its fake news problem, or is its entire business built around a model designed to sell us lies?
2: When I first signed up for Facebook, I didn't immediately think, oh yes, here I am, offering myself as a product to be resold, telling them all my secrets and my friends and my interests so that I could be sold off to the highest bidder.
1: Facebook is an incredible business. Facebook's valuation is the third highest ever in
2: an IPO. Investors are definitely liking Facebook. The company's shares soared today after reported record fourth quarter profits. It is now worth more than almost every
1: media company combined. But Facebook is also a little Frankenstein.
0: Mark Zuckerberg, in the days after the U.S. presidential election, he said it would be crazy to think that fake news swayed any voters. He quickly had to change his stance.
1: Some Facebook users saw the Las Vegas crisis response page with a link to this Gateway Pundit article
0: incorrectly identifying Geary Danley as the shooter. I think that the management of Facebook right now is committing malpractice. As a shareholder, I'm terrified
1: by what they're doing. Facebook's success and scandal are two parts of the same story.
2: And I think it's a predictable outcome of a pure attention merchant business model, no sense of ethical restraints, a pure quest for profit. Do you think Facebook, as it's currently
1: constructed, is a negative force for democracy?
2: Yes, I do. And why? Um, I think because it breaks down the barrier between what is news and what is rumor. If you destroy that, you know, basic line of some sense of what might be true and allow systematic widespread propagandizing, that is incredibly destructive to democracy. And Facebook is not pushing it itself, but it has become a vessel and a medium and an instrument of, of propaganda, private and public and foreign, and that is the danger.
1: Right. I think a, a defense of Facebook sometimes goes something like this. Uh, you know, rumors, false gossip, they exist everywhere. They don't exist on Facebook. They, they exist in newspapers, in magazines. They exist in church. They exist in book clubs. Um, if Facebook isn't any worse than that. It's simply a technological mirror held up to the human condition, and the human condition includes some people sharing stuff that's true and some people sharing stuff that's not true. What do you say to that?
2: I think there is no human condition. It all depends on the mirror and the angles the mirror is held. I'm I'm serious. I think people behave differently, um, you know, depending on the environment they're they're immersed in. I mean, it's actually crazy because it is a very important undertaking. It affects people's Lives, happiness, you know, perceptions of themselves, their sense of their place uh, in the world, but it's not be, really been engineered carefully to try to make people genuinely feel closer uh, together. Uh, I because I, I think it's all a means to an end; these other ends, and that, that's what I'm I'm saying.
1: So this is this is where I, I have to jump in and ask, do, you know how how do you think? Facebook should be fixed. I, I guess one, one way I think about this question is, does it need more government or more capitalism?
2: Uh, I think it needs three things, frankly. Um, uh, first, it does uh, certainly need more competition. So that's more capitalism, I guess. Uh, it, it needs more government oversight in particular areas where people will never take care of themselves properly. And then finally, it needs more ethics. But when it comes to
1: Facebook's ethics, Wu is not optimistic. And to understand his pessimism, it's worth understanding his experience with Facebook, not as a user, but as a regulator. Several years ago, Wu was working at the Federal Trade Commission under President Obama. And in 2011, the FTC caught Facebook in a lie. Facebook told users their data was private, but they used their information to sell ads
2: anyway. We said, you know, these privacy settings aren't really working, And you're you're lying to people about what they're doing.
1: So Facebook promised the government never again. The company would shape up. The buttons for privacy controls would mean what they say they mean. But data leaks kept happening again and again and
2: again. Lo and behold, Cambridge Analytica does the same thing. And lo and behold, they allow almost any advertiser to get at anything they want. And the buttons did still turn out to be fake,
1: Wu says we can't assume that deep down Facebook is interested in publishing the truth online because it's not that interested in telling the truth offline. What Facebook really cares about is keeping its business profitable.
2: Here's one of the reasons I think, you know, Facebook just has a a, a genetic makeup that is not predisposed towards privacy or ethics. Companies have a DNA, and I don't think this one was set up with ethics in its DNA. That, like, part is missing—
1: According to Wu, Facebook's flaws are in its code. But Facebook is a technology. Can't code be rewritten?
3: Some work has been done. A lot needs to be done still. Uh, but I'm, I'm very wary of painting the whole endeavor as rotten.
1: How to fix Facebook. Right after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: The fun never stops. The chair now recognizes himself... This spring months.
1: was, in some ways, the low point of Facebook's history in the public eye. The company had suffered scandal after scandal. Trump ads, Russian propaganda, Cambridge Analytica. Fighting for its global reputation, the company sent Mark Zuckerberg to testify before
2: Congress. Good morning welcome, Mr. Zuckerberg, to the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House.
1: One congressman asked what Facebook planned to do about the flood of false information on its site. One of the things that we're doing is working with um, a number of third parties who— so if people flag things as as false news or, or incorrect, um, we run them by third-party fact-checkers who are all accredited by the, this point, Pointer Institute of Journalism. The commander um, of this international falsehoods. effort to cleanse Facebook of falsehoods is Alexios Montzarlis. So I thought, maybe if I want to understand the future of facts in Facebook— this might be the most important person to talk to. Alexios, let's start with your job title. You are lead of the International Fact-Checking Network? That sounds rather grandiose.
3: Yeah, and it confused you, it confused my dad, and it confused the the Border Patrol, so um, you're in good company.
1: <laughs> right after the 2016 presidential election, Facebook reached out to Mansar Lise, who works for the Pointer Institute and is not paid by Facebook. The social network said it wanted to work with outside fact-checkers to find false information on its site. And Lee said, yeah, I'll help you. I'll help you find the best fact-checking organizations in the world. But what I wanted to know was, why? Why would an international authority on facts donate his time to a site that doesn't seem to care about them at all? I'd make the case
3: that around the world organizations like my own in Italy, uh, fact-checking organizations that uh, didn't have the connections in the mainstream media, that Facebook was the only way that these fact-checking organizations would reach an audience. So I'm very wary when people uh, sort of brand the whole uh, effort, the whole platform as a, a univocal
1: threat to democracy. If Facebook were turned off tomorrow, would the average truthfulness of news around the world, would it significantly rise, significantly fall, or essentially, do nothing? Essentially, do nothing. Mansourlis has a defense of Facebook. It goes like this. Most news critics comparing the world's news to the standards of, say, the New York Times, they're like food critics saying every hamburger needs to taste like a ribeye. It's a totally unrealistic demand. Second, most readers don't care about double fact-checked news stories. They like gossip. That's why they buy tabloids. And three, fact-checking organizations in the U.S. are really confrontational. PolitiFact literally calls politicians liars. Around the world, no other organization does that. Facebook had very little to do with creating this reality. But Facebook can fix it. Facebook is currently testing a new fact-checking system in several countries, including the U.S. Most of you probably haven't seen it, but here's how it works. Let's say you're on the news feed— An article comes up claiming that uh, scientists discovered evidence of winged bat creatures having orgies on the moon. And you think, uh, as much as I'd like that to be true, I'm a little concerned it's been shared by several relatives and 100,000 strangers. So what would I do?
3: What you would do, Derek Thompson, if you see this on Facebook, you would go to the top right of uh, the post, uh, to the carrot, where you could uh, click down and you can do all kinds of things, report, share, whatever. And one of the elements, one of the items is uh, um, reported as uh, as a fake news
1: story, as a false news story. If enough users like me identified this lunar bat boy story as false, then a group of Facebook-approved fact-checkers would study it. If the fact-checkers concluded the story was wrong, Facebook would insert a link debunking the story. And then algorithms would push it way, way down in the newsfeed so that fewer people would see it.
3: And also, if by any chance you had already shared it, uh, you would get a notification saying, hey, this article that you shared has been fact-checked, you might want to check it out. And I, I do want to stress one thing. This does not remove content from Facebook. That would not be something that I think
1: uh, fact-checkers would feel comfortable doing. So Facebook's version of fact-checking is really more like fact-labeling than fact-checking, and I think it's really important to distinguish the difference. Let's say I've written an article about you, Alexios, and it's going into the next issue of The Atlantic. And Now let's take a falsifiable claim that I might make in that article. So here's one. In college— um, Alexios uh, Mansarlis was a member of a secret society that performed ritualistic sacrifices of animals to appease an irritable god. Now, how did you know? <laughs> how did you know? Now, I made this claim in an article for the Atlantic. You'd get a call from our fact checkers, and we can simulate that experience right here, literally right now. Alexios, hi. I'm a fact checker working on an article by Derek Thompson. Um, Alexios, uh, did you attend college? I did, yeah. Okay, so far so good. Um, Alexios, were you a member of a secret society of animal-slaughtering Satanists? I was not. You were not. Okay, so we've established something quite important here, which is that my claim was incredibly wrong. (laughs) Um, So now at The Atlantic, we'd remove the sentence. And the theory would be that The Atlantic is an institution that values the dissemination of true information. So when that information isn't true, we just... Don't disseminate it. And Facebook seems to be trying to have it both ways. That they say they value facts, and I absolutely believe that its individual employees value facts. But their solution to verifying facts is insufficiently staffed. Their method of labeling dubious crap is empirically questionable. And their algorithm, designed as it is to reward emotional viral sharing, may very well naturally privilege false information.
0: (laughs)
3: Uh, There's lots to unpack there, Derek. (laughs) Um, Starting uh, with
1: my fixation on Satanism, potentially. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, I mean, no, all all excellent points. I would note that once we lose these publishers, if we did lose other voices from Facebook, they're not going to just stop publishing drivel, right? They'll be publishing drivel somewhere else where we might not be able to detect them. Facebook, for one positive thing it has, uh, um, is the capacity to detect things that are viral. You can't detect things that are going viral on closed messaging apps like WhatsApp or WeChat, for instance. And yet fake news could be and is disseminated broadly uh, outside the United States on those platforms. Mm-hmm. And then the final point is about Facebook's structure, whether it is sort of fundamentally flawed. For sure, its newsfeed, the way things bubble up, is built on an incentive mechanism around emotions, and emotions that are not great friends of facts. What Facebook does do, which it shouldn't, is allow then those tabloidy, gossipy, unfact-checked stuff. To sort of grow and grow and cover all the rest of the mm-hmm. stuff on Good. the newsstand. that's stand. where I was
1: going, yeah. Right?
3: So that's where the problem comes, right? You should be able to see all the stuff. You should be able to pick up um, the trashy gossip magazine that is made up for the 13th time that Queen Elizabeth has resigned uh, mm-hmm. or has stepped down.
1: But it shouldn't be sort of on each and every shelf. Maybe Facebook really is a simple newsstand. But isn't that bad enough? Facebook tells investors, recruits, and politicians that it's going to connect the globe and change the world for the better. But for now, it's just another place where gossip often triumphs over truth. It's a
3: tool that needs a lot of work. There are lots of things that are wrong with Newsfeed. Some work has been done. A lot needs to be done still. Uh, but I'm, I'm very wary of
1: painting the whole endeavor as rotten. He says Facebook can fix itself. But there's a problem. I have no idea if Facebook's fact-checking efforts are working, and neither does Montserlise. We haven't seen enough data from Facebook, or really any
3: data from Facebook yet, to evaluate how it's been going. So we have reassurances that prevalence of flagged fake news goes down, but we st- obviously still see blockbuster viral hoaxes reaching enormous audiences. And so this is my biggest uh, point now with Facebook, is to continue and ask for transparency from them.
1: Monserly's told me this in a kind of offhand way, but I think it's the whole damn story. Facebook is famous for giving up information about its consumers to companies and even to political groups. But it won't share data with its own fact-checkers? Facebook's most important resource is user information. Advertisers get it. Fact-checkers don't. That's Facebook's business model. And it's fundamentally incompatible with a business that puts truth over advertising. In the end, I think Tim Wu is right.
2: And I very strongly believe the important mission that we need to be thinking about is how we design competitors to Facebook that are engineered from the outset with a different set of goals.
1: That's Tim Wu again.
2: The first thing that comes out doesn't need to be the last
1: In 1833, Benjamin Day was the first publisher to sell his audience as a product. He inspired hundreds of copycats. But the real solution to the Sun's legacy of hoaxes didn't come from the Sun itself. The fix came from competition. It came from other 19th-century newspapers, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And yeah, they had advertising, but they also paid extra for ethical reporters and honest news. Their secret wasn't some whiz-bang technology. These companies published the truth because that was their business. If we want a Facebook built for truth, we should probably build a new social network.
2: Someone else needs to get in there, do that job with a different business model or a more restrained business model, uh, maybe a nonprofit, maybe something else. The opportunity is there, and I uh, will not rest happy until someone comes up with something better. And that way, I'm an optimist. You know, a true technologist believes when something is just broken, sometimes instead of trying to fix it, you build something better. And that's what I think we need to do with Facebook.
1: So in conclusion, move fast and break Facebook?
2: (laughs) That's good. Don't fix it, replace it. Move fast, break Facebook. And, you know, we can do better.
1: Crazy Genius was produced by Krista Ripple and Catherine Wells with help from Abdullah Fayad. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special, special thanks to Matt Thompson and Kevin Townsend. And hey, if you like the show so far, help us out. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm Derek Thompson. See you next week.